All right, I'd like to uh, thank you for joining our journey through the book of Numbers, uh, also known as In the Wilderness. If you're joining us for the first time today or the first time in a while, let me help catch you up a little bit. Just a little more than a year out from the Lord bringing the Israel, Israelites out of their oppression in Egypt with mighty signs and wonders, and after having spent that year receiving God's law at the foot of Mount Sinai, the book of Numbers sees God organizing them and, and ordering all aspects of the life of his people around himself in his presence. He establishes the tabernacle at the center of the community, and all the encampments are around it, and as he uh, orders the census of the people, uh, it's a military census, so he's preparing them for the battles that they will uh, incur as they go forward, as they go into the promised land. All that is happening is focused on God keeping his promise, delivering to them the inheritance that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob centuries before. Now, Everything is awesome in the first 10 chapters. And the people do everything that the Lord commanded through Moses. And then they break camp. And immediately, in the first three days of marching, they find it a little uncomfortable. And they begin to grumble as they deal with the, the natural friction of movement when you start to actually do something. And you may find this in your own life. It's easy to be spiritually minded in your special quiet time with God, right? It's just you and the Lord and the scriptures and praying. And maybe you've got some worship music playing or maybe it's in the silence of your own heart and mind and your thoughts are so focused on God except for those times when the devil's trying to distract you, which is probably a lot of the time. But it's really easy to not fall into sin when everything is simple and you haven't done anything yet. Right? Most of you right now are probably not overcome with temptation while we're sitting together in church. That's easy. The friction starts to happen when you go home and the rubber meets the road, right? No criminal commits a crime sitting in front of a police officer or a judge. <laughs> At least not twice, right? <laughs> but when you go out and you're with your boys back in the neighborhood doing your thing, it's easy then to fall into the temptation or when life gets difficult and you find the, the hardships happening it's easy to start to complain, to grumble against God. That's what the Israelites did. Then immediately after that, God judges them and then he has mercy on them and they, they seem to maybe turn away from that as they cry out for his mercy. But then immediately after that, some of them get a craving, a, a strong desire and specifically a lust for flesh, they want meat. They've been being provided for by God with the bread from heaven, this miraculous manna they couldn't really explain, and God's been feeding them with that since they left Egypt. And some of the mixed multitude among them, some who were not uh, necessarily Israelites but came along for the journey, some who were not focused on the Lord stirred up the people to think that there was something better, that God's plan for them wasn't good enough. It's a lot like when the serpent showed up in the garden and everything was perfect, but he convinced Adam and Eve that oh, there was a better plan. God's holding out on you. Same thing happens here. Oh, man, we were so much better off back in Egypt in slavery. But we had good food, right? We were slaves, but at least we had leeks and onions and cucumbers and fish. Now all we have is this stinking manna. What are we going to do? God, I don't want to see the manna again. Please, give us some meat. Actually, they didn't speak to God. They talked about God. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but if you try to talk about God behind his back, that doesn't work. <laughs> so they complain, but it's in the hearing of the Lord because he hears everything. He knows. He knows their hearts. He knew exactly what was going on. And God says, okay, you're not going to trust my provision. 
I'll give you just what you asked for. You're going to have so much meat, it's going to be coming out your nostrils. Literally, it's what it says. You're going to be eating meat for a month. You're going to be so sick of this meat. See, sometimes when God gives us what we want, it's not a blessing. It's his judgment. Giving us our way is often his judgment upon us. So that's strike two for them. Now they, they go through some other situations, and we find in chapters 13 and 14 they've gotten to the, the edge of the promised land. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. Now you know how this goes. They send the spies into the land, the scouts, to do some recon and come back with a report. They come back and say, wow, this is amazing. Everything that God said, everything that, that you've been telling us, Moses, it's even better than we expected. I mean, it's, it's just mind-blowing how good this is. Uh, but, you know, there's giants in the land. And so, no thanks, God, we're going to go back. They even try to get up a new leader to reject Moses and ultimately reject God to try to go backwards, back to Egypt, the land of their oppression and slavery. Doesn't seem like a great call to me, but, you know, in reality, don't we do that all the time? Things get hard, and then in our lack of faith, we turn back to the life that God has already rescued us from. Because this discipleship gig, it's a little bit too tough. Uh, you know, I thought God was going to make my path easy. Isn't that what the, what the proverb says? If I submit to God in all my ways, he'll make my path straight? Yeah, straight. But you still got to travel it. It's a narrow road, Jesus said, and you're going to have difficulties. But our tendency, just like them, is to say, you know what, this is too tough. And while we might not say it outwardly, and we don't say, I want to go back to slavery, that's exactly what we do. We go back to the thing that held us as slaves of sin. Even though we belong to a new master, we belong to him. So, Let's be careful not to be too harsh in our judgment of the Israelites as if we can't relate. As we begin, let's turn to the book of Numbers. This is the fourth book of the Bible, if that helps you find it. Toward the beginning, a little pro tip for you. Don't forget you have a table of contents like any other book. If you're not sure how to, how to find it, Go to the beginning, find the table of contents, and you find the page number for your book. Makes it nice and easy. All right? I'm going to read just the first three chapters of number th Numbers 13, then I'm going to jump to Deuteronomy 1. Deuteronomy is right after Numbers. It's the very next book. So after we read these first three verses, we'll go to Deuteronomy chapter 1. From Numbers 13, the Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. And then he lists their names and tells what they did. Let's, let's jump to Deuteronomy chapter 1, if you would. And we're going to find verse 19 when you get there. While you're looking that up, I'll just explain. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. Moses has led them to the promised land, but he, uh, because of, of a situation where he sinned against God, his, his consequence for his unfaithful choice is that the Lord lets him see the promised land but not enter. So he gets them there. They're about, he's about to hand the reins over to Joshua and go be laid with his fathers. And as they're about to enter the land, he recounts for them what the Lord has done and what the Lord has commanded so that when they go into this land, they won't forget the Lord and just become like everyone else. Which, as we watch their history play out, is exactly the problem they run into for coming generations, even centuries. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 1, starting with verse 19. 
Moses is telling them what has happened. He's reminding them of where they've been. Then he says, as the Lord our God commanded us, we set out from Horeb, which is another name for Sinai, and went toward the hill country of the Amorites through all that vast and dreadful desert that, that you've seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barnea, also known as Hebron. Then I said to you, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Okay, so, so far he's just telling them what they know. You know, they've been on this trek. You, you're coming to the land. God's giving it to you and tells you to go get it. Now, here in Deuteronomy 1, we get a little more information little background that we didn't have in Numbers 13. Notice what he says next. Then all of you came to me and said, let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we are to take and the towns we will come to. So, hold on a minute. In Numbers 13, God tells them to go ahead and send spies. But here in Deuteronomy, Moses is giving us a little insight as to why. It wasn't just that this was something God wanted them to do. It was God acquiescing to their frailty. They didn't have enough faith to just simply obey and say, okay, God said it, we're going to do it, here we go. They said, Moses, wait, wait, wait a minute, hold up a second here. It wouldn't be very smart of us to go into this land that you're calling us to. You're telling us God's given us the land, but shouldn't we you know, get this figured out don't we need a strategy don't we need some some reconnaissance here and let's let's figure this out they were fearful and so they clamored for moses to send scouts into the land and god says go ahead moses describes it from his own side of it in verse uh 23 the idea seemed good to me so i selected 12 of you one man from each tribe they left and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshkol and explored it. That's the story we see in, in Numbers 13 and 14. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Then he tells of their rebellion. That's where we find ourselves today. As we prepare to receive these principles from God's word. Let's turn to him in prayer. Father, we don't want to hear from some preacher. None of us are going to be changed by that. Nobody needs to hear my opinions. We need to hear from you. So Father, by your Holy Spirit, speak to us through your word. Do in us what we can't do in ourselves. What we would never choose to do in ourselves. Cause us to hand over control to you. Knowing that you are already Lord of all things. Lord, we ask that you would make yourselves Lord in our lives. Help us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds with your word that we might be who you have called us to be, that you might receive glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Okay, so in, in Numbers 13 and 14, uh, God's brought his covenant people uh, to the, the very brink of his promised inheritance for them. But the problem is they let their weakness and fear become the idols to which they bow. And they turn their backs on, the, on all that God offers them. Insulting his character and actually taking actions to try to reverse the exodus itself. The Lord judges them for their wicked unbelief. But not before he demonstrates his merciful and loving character. And that's precisely where we want to focus our attention today. We, we took the story in chapters 13 and 14 in a big chunk. 
Now we're taking a few weeks to just sort of settle in and, and you know, let the crock pot simmer a little bit with some of these principles so that we can develop them a little more. Our core reality for today comes out of this passage. Wicked unbelief brings wrath, but the Lord is patient with our weakness. Wicked unbelief brings wrath, but the Lord is patient with our weakness. Now, if you've been here, some of you are probably thinking, well, that sounds a lot like some of the things that we said before. And that was one of our points from previous sermon, as these each are, as we're developing them. Well, we kind of flip the emphasis because it's, it's clear what happens when they reject God's promised blessing. And they, in the process, are rejecting God. And God says, as a consequence of your wicked unbelief, of your unfaithfulness, I, I'm going to bring the people into the land. I'm going to keep the promises that I made. But this generation who has proven repeatedly, testing me ten times to despise me, they will all fall in the wilderness. We want to recognize that and keep that judgment of wicked unbelief present in our minds. We want to take a look at the nature of God's heart, of His character, as He reveals Himself. And understand that He is patient with our weakness. Many of you struggle with the idea of messing up too much for God. And I'm here to tell you, the entire story of Scripture is trying to drive home in our hearts that it was never about us being good enough in the first place. We weren't, we aren't, we can't be. And right now, you might be struggling with the idea that you don't know me. How are you going to tell me I'm not good enough? I'm a pretty moral person. I think God sees me and, and understands that I'm doing my best and I do more good than bad and I'm here to tell you with absolute certainty, not my authority, but the authority of Scripture, that God says all sin, any sin, one little drop of sin is enough to separate us from a perfectly holy God. His standard is himself. If you are less good and holy than God, then you have fallen short of his glory, of his standard. And you cannot have a relationship with him. That's the bad news. The good news is that God wants a relationship with you anyway. And he loves, he delights in showing mercy. And what he wants is to pour out his compassion on you. And he has done that because he loved this world he created so much. John 3.16. We all know the verse. Let's let it sink into our minds. He so loved the world that he gave his one and only, only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And God demonstrates his own love for us, Romans 5, 8, in this. While we were yet sinners, while we were still far from God, not even looking for God, but subject to his wrath, objects by nature of God's judgment and wrath, he sent his son. That's pretty huge. He demonstrated, demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's not a, a free pass that says, oh, hey, awesome, cool, thanks, God. I get to move on and do whatever I want. I get to run my show. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, the only way that you can follow me is you have to die. That's how you live. You die to yourself, you die to your plans, you die to your control, and you make yourself a living sacrifice in view of God's mercy. It's the only reasonable, logical, spiritual act of worship. 
That's from Romans 12, 1 and 2. So, therefore, we want to know what it is that God wants so that he can transform us from the inside as we renew our minds with his word, with his scripture. All right. <clears throat> Again, core reality, wicked unbelief brings wrath. But the Lord is patient with our weakness. The Lord will not tolerate faithlessness, but he is merciful toward weakness. People might not be that merciful toward weakness, but God is. The Lord judges the rebellious, but he's gentle toward the weak, the humble, those who fear him. Consider our memory verse for this week, Psalm 103, 14. It's printed for you in your program from the English Standard Version. Here the psalmist says, For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. That was our opening psalm last week because there's so many pictures in that psalm of God's mercy, his compassion toward us. He's compassionate toward us as a father toward his children. He knows our frame. He made us. He knows how we are made. He knows our weaknesses, our every failing, our every struggle, our every temptation. Earlier we read from Hebrews where we know that Jesus faced those temptations. He put on flesh. He became one of us, not as some separate kind of super being, but he, he lived and died as a man facing every temptation that you and I face. And yet, without sin. He's the only one who can ever say that. Which is why he was able to die for my sin and yours because he didn't have any of his own. I can't die for your sin. You can't die for mine. I've got to pay for my own sin. The penalty of sin is death. Separation from God for eternity. That's our natural state we see in Ephesians chapter 2 that our natural state for every single human being because of our sin nature we are sinners by nature and identity as well as by choice. We transgress, we break the law all the time. But even aside from that, our hearts in ourselves tend to be for ourselves when we are created for the purpose of glorifying and enjoying God. So... <clears throat> So we see this principle in our memory verse. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God demonstrates this knowledge with Israel over and over. And we see it at work here in this passage. We see it best in His grace to us in Jesus. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. While we were yet sinners, far from Him and not even seeking Him, that whosoever believes in Him should, have, should not perish but have everlasting life. He did what we could not and would not so that we could become what we could never be on our own, his own children, wholly accepted, dearly loved, forever declared to be in right standing with him. This is amazing grace. Now, as we see this play out, in the passages that we read, Deuteronomy 1, giving color to what happens in Numbers 13, we see that God has them send spies in because they are already clamoring for spies and fearful. Now, obviously, the creator of all things, who is all-knowing, knew this before any of them were even created or born. But they're clamoring out of fear. God is sending, sending the spies in all to be chiefs among the people, representatives of each tribe. And as they go in, this is a perfect opportunity for their faith to be strengthened. God sends the spies in so that the spies can see and report, look, man, this is everything God promised. He's been saying this to our fathers for generations. 
This is where we've been, been pointed. This is where he, he's bringing us to. And from the moment he stole us away from Pharaoh by all of his mighty signs and wonders and the ten plagues and the miraculous things that he did to deliver us from the mightiest nation and army on the planet. This is it. Everything he said is right on, dead on true. It should have been the biggest strengthening that they could have. And yet, all they could see was giants, obstacles. It's too hard. We're not strong enough. They're bigger than us. They're taller than us. There are so many of them. They're populating every part of this land. We can't do it. Let's go back. Let's unfold some of the principles as we go through here. First off, notice this. If you're taking notes, you can write this in your program. In our frailty, the Lord patiently works to strengthen us. In our frailty, the Lord patiently works to strengthen us. This is exactly the point of the spies going in. We're too frail. We don't get it. We're afraid. And God doesn't say, how dare you be afraid? You pathetic weakling. He says, come my child. Let me strengthen your feeble knees. Let me hold you up in my mercy and grace. Because you're right. It is too much for you. But it was never too much for me. And it's never been about you, I hold you in my hand and I will carry you. This is why in number six, he tells the priest to stamp his name on the people by praying that, that ironic priestly uh, blessing that we've been uh, using each week as we go through this book of numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord Make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you because he's for you and give you peace. It's not about the people doing it. It's about God doing it. And when he sees our weakness, he steps into our weakness gently. The Messiah, the one who will rule all things and judge all people, the one who will lay waste to the wicked and destroy all things that are less than perfect is the same one who came gentle, humble, riding on a donkey, of whom it was said that a bruised reed he would not break and a smoldering wick he would not snuff out. That's the heart of our Lord. Your faith is weak? Of course it is. We're weak people. And it's only the weak who humble themselves enough to receive God's grace. If you think you're strong enough, A, you're not. B, it's keeping you from falling on your knees before him to say, Lord, save me. In our frailty, the Lord patiently works to strengthen us. Notice the second point. The one who knows our hearts knows the difference between our weakness and our rebellion. The one who knows our hearts knows the difference between our weakness and our rebellion. Let's turn to a couple of psalms to take a look at that. If you are looking for the psalms, they're generally in the middle of your Bible, so if you just open to the center, you should be pretty close. You should be able to find that. Let's start in Psalm 103. It's where we find our memory verse for today. and We read it last week. I would love to read the whole thing uh, together. Uh, you know what? I'm going to do it. I, I was, I was going to not do it, but man, how can I not? Psalm 103. David writes this psalm and he says, Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. 
who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. How can I not read this? Man. Notice this next portion. He is giving us this picture that God knows our hearts and he knows not only our weakness, but he knows when that's not just weakness, but it's rebellion against him. And he wants to give compassion to our weakness. So, verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Let me read that again because that, that is such an important truth to my wayward, wandering, sinful heart. I hope it, I hope it connects with you. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. In other words, we're all going to die. We're not here that long. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord. All his heavenly hosts, you as servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Amen. That, uh, so much, so much power there. We don't have time for me to stay. So let's turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, also from David. Start with verse 1. O Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O oh Lord. Let me stop for just a moment. Jesus said that the words that come out of our mouths are the overflow of our heart. It's like a well that, that bubbles up and spills out over things. The things that are in my heart are the things that come out my mouth. If there's filth coming out my mouth, there's filth in my heart. It's very common these days, it seems, for those who claim to follow Christ to think it just doesn't matter the things that I say. I keep seeing t-shirts and things that, you know, I love Jesus but I cuss a little kind of thing. Man, if, if you're okay with that, don't get me wrong. I'm not under the delusion that there are a whole lot of people here that don't sometimes, right? Okay, I'm, I'm not stupid. And I say plenty of things I shouldn't say. But if I'm okay with that, I have a serious heart problem. 
If I'm okay with my behavior not lining up with who I say I am, I have a serious heart problem. Christian, you've got to get right. You're not going to be perfect. But there is a difference between my weakness, my struggles, and my rebellion, the hardness of my heart that says, eh, whatever, it doesn't matter that much. I don't have to worry. Jesus died for my sins, right? It's all paid for. I'm good to go. Okay. How would you feel if you gave everything to someone who just said, hey, thanks, and went on their merry way to do whatever they want without gratitude? Let me get back to the text here. As we read Psalm 139, remember the one who knows our hearts knows the difference between our weakness and our rebellion. So this picture of God knowing us, searching us, knowing our thoughts and our words before they ever come out of us, when nobody else sees us, God does. When I'm sideways from him, that ought to terrify me. When I'm his child, that ought to be the most comforting thing in the world. Verse 5, you hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created, <clears throat> you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. Because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them? They would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. Jump down to verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There's no part of us that God does not know. I can't hide from him. I can't dress it up. I can't try to say pretty prayers that sound really good and super spiritual and somehow then convince God. I can't dress it up. I might be able to fool you into thinking I'm better than I am, but I can never fool him. At the same time, this God who knows us inside and out knows the difference between our weakness and our rebellion, our struggle and our hard-hearted, hard-headedness that says, I'm in control, I do what I want. That is the wicked unbelief that receives God's wrath. But when his children mess up, he longs to take us in his arms and embrace us and say, child, that's the wrong path. I'm going to have to discipline you so you remember, but get on the right path. I will walk with you. I will never be apart from you, and you will never be alone. Trust me. That's a powerful love. In our frailty, the Lord patiently works to strengthen us. And the one who knows our hearts knows the difference between our weakness and our rebellion. Notice this. The child, uh, that children who stumble never need fear a loving father. Children who stumble never need fear 
a loving father. I'll tell you, I was a fairly rambunctious child. We were talking in the parenting class this morning that if you raise boys, you know what being a rambunctious child is, right? And uh, my daughter-in-law was shocked when she married into our family from a family of girls to realize that boys don't wear clothes a lot of the time. They're just, you know, shirtless boys sitting around the house and all these different things. There's so many stories. But anyway, <laughs> over the years, probably could not inventory the number of things that I broke in my mother's house, partly because there's a lot of things in my mother's house. You know, those of you who have been there, who have been there know it's the birthplace of all ADHD. <laughs> and in my hyperactivity, many things got knocked over. Many things got broken. My children and grandchildren have carried on this tradition and we have a legacy apparently. Now, nobody's happy when your child does something that causes damage because they were acting foolish. And so it's appropriate when your child does something that is foolish, whether or not they break your favorite lamp, it is appropriate to discipline them if you love them so that they learn and don't make foolish choices later. I think we can all recognize as we get older, it becomes a lot bigger than just breaking a lamp, right? The consequences of bad choices gain more weight as we get older. You're not probably going to be happy about the lamp. But if you love your children, the lamp's not your focus. Now, you're sinful people, so that's going to happen sometimes. I'm a sinful person. Believe me. Believe me. I've lost my temper with my children at least once. <laughs> a day. Um, but when a baby's learning to walk, they fall down a lot. Only an idiot, as spiritually as I can say this, only an idiot sees a child fall down and says, what's wrong with you, kid? Can't you get this right? Sadly, we do that too often in other areas of weakness as our children grow up. Hear me now. Our God never, never does that. He is perfectly loving. And as a loving father, when we stumble, his heart is for us. And he wants to lift us up and restore us. And when we have sinned against him as his children, discipline is appropriate, is it not? But the punishment the retribution for a wrong done has already fallen on Jesus Christ. And by faith in him, we receive that clemency, that pardon. And really it's not even that. It's that the penalty for our crimes has already been paid. I can't be resentenced for the same crime twice. He's already paid it. So now as God's child, no longer his enemy, I'm his child. Before I'm in Christ, it's my nature. All of us are in the same boat. We're dead in our sins. We are enemies of God. Not a popular thing to say. I didn't write it. I'm just reading it. Now, as his children, he's not looking to catch us messing up. Believe me, we mess up plenty. It's not hard to see. But he takes us in his arms. This is my child. Let me get you back on your feet. You're too afraid to take hold of the promised inheritance I'm giving you? Go ahead, send the spies in. You shouldn't need it, it's foolish. It's foolish for them to ask for God to send spies in, for Moses to send spies in. God said it. That's it, that's all. You shouldn't need any more than that. And yet, we do, don't we? Because we're weak. We're frail. God knows that. He made us. He knows our frame. He knows that we're 
made out of the dirt. Children who stumble never need fear a loving father. Luke 15 gives us a picture of that. It gives us actually several pictures of that. I'm going to invite you to turn there with me if you would. All the way into the New Testament. So you're going to be probably four-fifths of the way through your Bible to get to the book of Luke. If you see the Gospels, you'll see names that you recognize. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then he gets into uh, the Acts and Romans and, and other more funny-sounding names. Luke being right there between uh, Mark and John. Find Luke. Chapter 15 comes right after chapter 14. I wasn't a great student, but I did figure that out. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus is telling some parables that are describing the kingdom, but what they're really describing is the heart of our Heavenly Father. And if you have headings in your Bible, which most of you probably do, you'll see something like the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son. But the focus really isn't on the thing that is lost, but on the response of the one who values that thing and sees it as precious in choosing to do whatever it takes to find it and reclaim it. I want us to focus in on what you may know as the story of the prodigal son, starting with verse 11 of Luke 15. Because this gives us a clear picture of our loving Father who is holy. The standards cannot be fudged or messed with. But he longs to pour out his mercy, undeserved kindness on us. Verse 11, Jesus continued in telling these parables. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Basically what he's saying is, I want my inheritance now. The implication here is that he is doing to his father a despicable thing. Because in this culture, what it's saying is, I consider you as dead. Your stuff is more valuable to me than you are. I don't think I need to say more. Verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Now remember, Jesus is a Jew talking to Jewish people. Ostensibly, this is a Jewish parable, Jewish family. Pigs are absolutely unacceptable. It's an unclean animal. So the picture of this is he's doing despicable things to survive. 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. You had wealth and comfort with dad, but you wanted something better, so you went and did your thing, and it didn't end well. And it ended so badly that pig food is better than what you've got. Okay, so the, just painting a picture, giving you the, the scenario, that's what Jesus is doing here. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, let me read that again. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. This is the plan that he's got. It's a good plan. It's logical. Again, he... He came to his senses and realized dad's employees, the servants, you could extend it, the slaves, the lowest people on the estate have it better than I do. I'm going to go and beg for mercy. I can't go back and say, you know, Father, you know, I, I want to go back to my full standing, but will you just hire me on and let me be a servant? 
We spend a lot of time, as we talk about this story, focusing on that. You've probably heard it a bunch of times when people go into what the prodigal son did when he was away. What does this riotous, wild living look like and blah, 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 all these different things. All that's just painting the picture, setting the scene. This next part is the entire point of the parable. This is what Jesus wants us to see. He's got his plan. He's, he's got the script figured out for just the right thing to say to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, he gets started with his script, your father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Notice verse 22. Dad doesn't even let him finish his sentence. You're, no, I don't care about that right now. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I said that was the entire point. It's really half of the entire point. The point is the contrast between the father's heart and the heart of the older brother who says, what the heck? Dad, you're rewarding his bad behavior. It was a picture of the Pharisees, the spiritual leaders of the people. Far too often, when we fancy ourselves moral people, church people, far too often we end up in that same boat. Those people over there with their sins, they're terrible people. Yeah, I got some sins too, but, but those people. It's, you know, it's why we like the idea, the unscriptural idea of purgatory. There's got to be some kind of payment, right? We've got to do some kind of penance. We've got we to get it cleaned up. We've got to get it paid for. Jesus already paid for our sins. So when we turn to him, the Father's not worried about you saying a sinner's prayer. He wants you to turn to him. All he wants is for you to humble yourself enough to say, Dad, I got this whole thing screwed up and I'm done. I can't do it anymore. I need you to save me. And before the words even come out of your mouth, the one who created you and knows you are just dust, who knew your sin before you committed it, who knew the difference between your weakness and your hard-hearted re rebellion, runs to you. And says, my child, you're finally home. This is what I've been waiting for. Just come home and be with me. That's the heart of our God. That's what Jesus wants us to see. The older brother is the contrast to that. God's not interested in trying to clean up your moral act. He knows that you'll never do that. Jesus paid for it. He just wants you to come home. And then he'll do the changing inside you as your desire is no longer for the things of the world, the things of the flesh. I no longer want it to be my way. I want to go his way. That's the change inside that leads to the change that works itself outside. Children who stumble never need fear a loving father. He's running to us, not from us. Notice this. Our weakness highlights God's compassionate heart. Our weakness highlights God's compassionate heart. There are so many uh, psalms and, and words from the prophets and, and pictures of this. I listed a couple of them for you in your program. You can look them up for your homework. In case you didn't know you have homework. 
But I want you to see a couple of passages, passages in particular. Let's turn just quickly to Psalm 145. You already know where to find the Psalms because we're already there. So just past where you were, we find Psalm 145. And we're not going to read the whole thing. We'll just read a couple of verses from it so that you get the picture. Our weakness highlights God's compassionate heart. When you find it, let's look at verses 7 to 9. In the middle of this psalm of praise, in fact, that's the heading for it, a psalm of praise of David. It starts with, I'll exalt you, I'll praise you, every day I will praise you, great is the Lord. But notice why the people around will celebrate him. Verse 7, they will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. Seems like we just read that, didn't we? The Lord is good to all, his compassion on all he has made. Some of you uh, just did a study in Jonah with me, and this is exactly what made Jonah mad. Jonah was like the older brother. How dare you, God? I, I don't want to tell these Ninevites, fish slappers for you Veggie Tales fans. I don't, I don't want to tell them that you're going to judge them because if I do and they repent, I know you. You delight in mercy and, and you want to show them compassion and I don't get that because they're bad people. They're not like us. The reason the nations will praise God is the twofold reality of his holy standards and judgment, his wrath, and his compassion. And as they see the holiness of God highlighted by his standards and judgment, they see his compassion highlighted by our weakness, our frailty. Because we need him so much. And he delights in being kind and merciful and gentle. Let's go back to the New Testament. Past where you were in Luke a little bit to the book of Romans. If you get to names of funny sounding cities, you went a little too far. Romans chapter 15 when you find it. Romans 15, verses 8 to 12. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. That's right, we're in the middle of where we are right now, right? We're, we're in Numbers, he's uh, displaying these promises that God's about to deliver on, and he still has more promises that he's delivering on. So, Jesus became a servant to the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Again, it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up one who will arise to rule over the nations, and the Gentiles will hope in him. Our weakness highlights God's compassionate heart. It puts a spotlight on his glory. Last point we need to see here. The Lord's great mercy is most fully seen in Jesus. The Lord's great mercy is most fully seen in Jesus. We read from Hebrews 4, 11 to 16 earlier. So I won't read it for you again. You can look that up on your own, you're sensible people. Jesus is the best picture of the heart of God. He is the perfect 
representation of who God is. In Colossians, we're told that he is essentially the invisible God made visible for us. Emmanuel, God with us, the Son who became man. And because he walked in our shoes, dealt with our weakness, lived with our frailty, we can look at him and know that he understands us. Now, understand, Jesus didn't need to do that to understand us. He didn't do this so he could identify with us. He did it so we could identify with him. How could the all-knowing God not know our weakness already? How could he not know what it's like to be us if he gave us our capacity to feel and the emotions that we have? But we don't understand what it's like to be holy, to be God. And so Jesus, connecting with us, puts on skin, lives in the frailty and weakness of humanity, faces every single temptation, every struggle, every insult, every, every difficult emotion that you and I ever face. Jesus went through that and never sinned. So he can be the mediator for us. We don't pray to saints. He's our mediator. We don't need someone else to go between us and God. We can pray to the Father directly in the name of Christ because we're united to him in Christ. In a covenant relationship, Jesus is the best picture of God's heart the reality of God is most fully seen in Him. I want to read to you the lyrics of a hymn as we come toward the end here. It's a hymn that will be familiar for some of you from 1895 by a man named Johnson Oatman. who's a Methodist. Some great hymns come out of that. Old Methodist Episcopal tradition. This one often goes by the title, No, Not One. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. None else could heal all our soul's diseases. No, not one. No, not one. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. No friend like him is so high and holy. And yet no friend is so meek and lowly. There's not an hour that he is not near us. No night so dark, but his love can cheer us. Was e'er a gift like the Savior given? Will he refuse us the bliss of heaven? No, not one. No, not one. Every person who turns to Jesus receives Jesus. Every person. No one comes except the Father draws him. No one is able to repent until the Lord has softened your heart. So if you feel him speaking to you now, if you want to do something about what's wrong in your heart right now, it's because the Holy Spirit has broken up that fallow ground to prepare you to receive his word. And you will not be refused. As we said from the beginning today, Wicked unbelief brings wrath, but the Lord is patient with our weakness. The Lord will certainly judge the wicked, that is, all who choose to worship their own feelings over his character and his promises. But he delights in giving mercy to those who will turn their weaknesses over to him. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He made us. He knows how frail we are. Because he longs to show us his compassion, he sent his son Jesus into this fallen, rebellious world to live and walk as a man made of the same flesh, the same dust as we are, so that we could identify with the reality that he understands our weakness. Because those who place their faith, 
Their hope in Jesus are united to him. His life flows through us by his spirit. This is why the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And again, in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10, Paul writes, But he said to me, speaking after he'd prayed for God to remove a difficulty from his life, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We're made from dust. We're weak-willed and failing. But we were made to glorify and enjoy the Lord and the overwhelming strength of God himself is ours by entering into a covenant relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ. Because of God's great love for us given freely in the person and work of Jesus, we can glory in our weakness as our weakness brings glory to our patient, merciful, compassionate Lord. May his name be ever praised. Father, as we close today, we bring to you one final song. I pray that its words, its message would resonate in our hearts and in our minds the way you move through music to speak to us. Father, what we need is not a song. We need your word planted deep in us that we might be transformed by your Holy Spirit. That's what we seek. We fall upon your mercy knowing that you delight to give it. For, Father, just teach us when we have failed you not to run from you but to run to you knowing that you are patient with our weakness. And Father, teach us not to be willful or presumptuous as if our sins don't matter because you know the difference between our weakness and our rebellion. Now, Lord, help us to live a life that honors you, yet not us, but Christ in us. These things we pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand for our closing